From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Jake Strand. And I'm Tracy McRae. From Lyme disease to Zika virus, vector-borne illnesses are still prevalent in the United States and other places around the world. So how close are we to vaccines to help prevent these diseases? On today's program, we'll talk about vaccine research and the problem of vaccine hesitancy with a Mayo Clinic expert. If somebody had been in this room with measles eight hours ago and you were susceptible and walked in, you'd get infected. And unfortunately, even today, measles kills about one to three out of a thousand people that get it. It is not a benign childhood disease. Also on the program, will the HPV test replace the pap smear? And how gut bacteria may affect weight loss. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Jake Strand. And I'm Tracy McRae. We've all heard the advice about avoiding Lyme disease. If you walk through the wooded areas or grassy areas where it's prevalent, you should do the following. Use insect repellent, cover your exposed skin, and check yourself thoroughly once you return home. If you see a tick, pluck it off your skin with tweezers or maybe burn the match a little bit. No! No, no, no. Oh, that's old. See, we're going to learn something this today. We are. And make sure to keep an eye out for that bullseye-shaped rash and flu-like symptoms. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, about 30,000 cases of Lyme disease are reported each year, making it the most common vector-borne illness in the U.S. And the number of Lyme disease cases has tripled in the last 20 years. You might be wondering if Lyme disease has become so common, why isn't there a vaccine for it? And the person to answer it is here today, the director of Mayo Clinic's Vaccine Research Group, Dr. Gregory Poland. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Poland. Thank you, Tracy. Good to be here. You can tell that Dr. Strand has never done a tick show before because he talked about burning a tick. So let's just start right there. No. Why should you not burn a tick? Do not burn a tick. You will burn you. <laughs> Not so much the tick. Having done that, yes, you will. But, but what Jake said at the beginning was exactly right. Take a tweezers and just pull it straight out. Um, and the faster you get it out, the better. After about 24 hours, we get worried that uh, the tick has had enough time to, I hate to use the word, but regurgitate those bacteria into you, and they cause a variety of diseases, one of which is Lyme disease. By the way, that estimate of 30,000 cases is probably tenfold too low. I saw you flinch when I read that. Yeah. So it's tenfold oh, yeah. too low? It's probably about 300,000 new cases a year. Holy moly. And, you know, right along the Mississippi River Valley where mm-hmm. we live, mm-hmm. and then the East Coast are really the epicenters of these tick-borne diseases. So not along the southern part of the United States? Not so much. All I right. mean, every state has had cases, sure. but... Now, are, are Lyme disease cases tripling or... Are we just getting better at finding it, diagnosing it? Both. Okay. Um, we are better at diagnosing, and, and there's more awareness about it. But there actually are more people outside. Their uh, tick habitat has expanded. I mean, look at the deer around here. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are new species. I don't know if you've heard about this, but in the last few months, the first new species of tick identified in the U.S. in 50 years was identified, and it's an Asian longhorn tick that is unbelievably prolific, 2,000 eggs at a time. They found, this is going to make your head crawl, a vet walked into a pen, looked at this sheep, and the ears were encrusted with ticks. 
He says he was in there about three minutes. They had he had over a thousand ticks on him. Holy moly! And so, is that in this part of the country too, or where is that? Yet. It's eight states along the northeast, but in the Midwest here, we got two new viruses that have been identified: so-called Heartland virus and Bourbon virus. So there are there are lots of new viruses and tick-borne illnesses being identified. So we don't, have, as you said, we don't have a Lyme vaccine. There's a company working on one, but it's been very contentious because of anti-vaccine sentiment with the last vaccine that we had. This is either really frightening stuff or this is what we might start seeing as we, like you said, as uh, we deal with getting into new habitats, people being yeah. outside more with... Um, you know, new species being introduced. Certainly in lots of parts of the country we deal with invasive species. What can people do to be better prepared for some of these new ticks that are coming along or, or um, how, to, how to become prepared for that? Well, everything I'm going to tell you helps, but it's not the full answer. We need a vaccine. Yeah. We need a way to prevent this. So what we can do at the current time is in your home, in, in your area, keep the grass mowed, keep the bushes back, if you are out in, uh, these ticks are what are called questing ticks, meaning they sit on the tips of grass and they wait for a mammal to go by, mm. and boom, they latch on to you. So you want to wear long pants, long sleeves. Who wants to do that in the summer? Ew. Use tick repellents. And as you said, check, check yourself afterwards, but it's very hard. Some of these ticks are the size of a poppy seed. Yeah, and I'd be curious, you know, you mentioned some preventative measures besides kind of wearing the long pants in the summer. Are there anything to this? I've been reading about this more in the paper about combinations of both repellent and things like permethrin. Yes. Are there better combinations that you well, see? Well, permethrin is actually very effective, um, but especially the permethrin impregnated clothing where you wear long right. pants, okay. tuck it in mm -hmm. your socks, wear boots. Those all help but they're not perfect. Yeah. How is it that we've got a Lyme disease, a vaccine for dogs, but not for people? Yeah. It's, there was a, if I use baseball parlance, we had a Lyme disease that was sort of a double or a triple, but not a home run or a grand slam. And there was a false hypothesis that the vaccine was causing arthritis, which is absolutely not true. It has been looked at and looked at. I've published on this. There is no evidence for this. But class action lawsuits and anti-vaccine sentiment got to the point where the companies, the company that made this wasn't selling very much, and they said, not going to make it anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, when, if that stuff is able to be um, alleviated to some degree, how close scientifically do you think we are for well the, for getting the that? next va and and by the way the old vaccine protected you against the North American species mm -hmm. but not when you travel to Europe so the new vaccine that's being developed will protect you against all of those they've finished uh, uh, the the second stage of testing now they'll go into phase three testing so it's still going to be a while mm -hmm. five plus years I've been trying to uh figure out exactly what vector-borne illness means. It's a secret that you learn in medical school, Tracy. Uh, <laughs> well, I know the two of you know it. <laughs> what it means is that there's a vector, whether it's a mosquito, a tick, something other than a human, mm -hmm. <laughs> and they have a disease that can be transmitted to you. So the way it works with ticks is the tick bites, uh, sucks on your blood. That blood gets mixed with the bacteria in its gut, 
it then attaches to the next person and regurgitates that into the skin. And these little bacteria called Borrelia get released in there and begin disseminating through the body. The worst. We've heard about, you know, not just Lyme disease, but we've heard about a lot of these vector-borne illnesses recently Mm -hmm. and and thinking certainly about Zika virus. Where are things with Zika? It sort of really um, hit a panic for a a number of months, and it seems like things have calmed down. Yeah, but that, you know, this is the problem with, uh, you know, the media and science. It did, and that's what it's done in every outbreak that we know of only to reoccur or to reoccur somewhere else. So our group is actually working uh, on a Zika vaccine, and we just uh, developed a partnership with NIH, who's also developed one. So uh, we think we can develop one. We think it'll be, you know, hopefully safe and effective. But we're at risk. Uh, There are definitely climate changes that are occurring that include the U.S. The mosquito species that carries Zika believe it or not, has been found in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's hard to believe. Mm-hmm. But that whole southern rim, we have other mosquito-borne diseases like dengue. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we've got some real issues that are going to have to be uh, further looked at. We're not sure why Zika didn't become established in Miami. They had indigenous cases, but that doesn't mean it won't in right. the future. In the past, we have heard about co-infections. What does that mean? Yeah, good question, Tracy. What that means is that when you, for example, get a tick bite, it's, you're not at risk for just one infection, but co-infections means more than one. So you could have two or three, and this is the ticks are notorious for this. So you may make a diagnosis of Lyme disease, for example, but you may actually be infected with two or even three different types of bacterial species that have to be considered and treated. Fortunately, the treatment is usually good for all three of the more common ones, but not necessarily, and you got to check. Is that why sometimes people can have Lyme disease but not have that bullseye rash? Well, that's for a different reason. Okay. Not everybody gets that classic bullseye rash, but about 75-80% do. I would say, though, a couple of years ago, there was people that would go undiagnosed with Lyme disease. Oh, I mean, yes. it seems like doctors are getting a lot better at figuring yeah. it out. Yeah. Is it because the testing is getting better? The testing is better, and I think perhaps more is the awareness, particularly in, in areas like Minnesota, Wisconsin, the Northeast, where there are a lot of cases. We've been talking about vector-borne illnesses and vaccines with Mayo Clinic vaccine expert, Dr. Gregory Poland. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll discuss the problem of vaccine hesitancy. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Jake Strand. And I'm Tracy McRae. In 2000, the U.S. declared that measles had been eliminated. But as of today, the CDC is monitoring measles outbreaks in 21 states. Holy smokes. How can previously eradicated diseases return? The problem is vaccine hesitancy. Back with us to discuss is the director of the Vaccine Research Group of Mayo Clinic, Dr. Gregory Poland. Vaccine hesitancy, is that for real? It's for real. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we have a minor issue with in some people, they don't respond well to the vaccine, but the big elephant in the country's living room is this vaccine hesitancy. People who look to inappropriate sources for medical information and get false information. The big one, of course, has been that somehow measles vaccine causes autism, which absolutely is not true. It's been disproven. 26 studies across uh, 10 countries across two decades 
no one can find any evidence of this. Well, and because the guy who wrote that report has come back and said, no, I was lying, it wasn't true. Well, he was stripped of his medical license. And, um, you know, the the interesting thing is the county that he lives in has the lowest immunization rate among school children of any county in the U.S. Wow. It's interesting that people would believe when he said you shouldn't, but now no one wants to believe that. There's a conspiracy psychology in there, isn't there? Yeah, my daughter, in fact, is a psychologist, and she and I have written on this topic together and lectured on it. I guess the bottom line is, you know, there's a few people that you're never going to change their mind. But I believe most people, most parents really do want to do the right thing for Mm -hmm. their child or their family member, and they're confused. Why would you look to some celebrity that maybe went to high school versus, you know, Dr. Strand, who's Mm -hmm. or myself, who's Mm -hmm. been through umpteen years of training? I spend my life doing research in this area. But it's very, very hard uh, to convince people that healthy people that they should do something now to protect their health in the future. Well, you know, it's interesting you bring up that point. And we see this a lot with other types of medicines, medicines that, you know, are being used to treat things that we may not notice the symptoms of, Mm -hmm. whether that's hypertension or high cholesterol for many years. There's also, I, you know, I think I'm curious, I've heard from a lot of uh, parents um, when I've lived in other parts of the country of this idea of, you know, I'm, when I have a kid, there's so little control that I have, I've got to find something to control, and maybe this is one way to, to do that. It, it's just too bad, unfortunately, that people who really do care and want to do the right thing are getting all these mixed messages, and people are getting harmed because of it. We've noticed psychologically two, sort of two kinds of parents, the sin of omission or commission. I'll hear a parent say, If I give this vaccine to my child and something happens, I'll never forgive myself. And the other parent who says, if I don't protect my child with this vaccine and something happens that I could have prevented, Mm -hmm. I'll never forgive myself. Very hard to Mm -hmm. move either one, either way. The way I've dealt with that is I say, what are you most expert in? They'll tell me. I said, well, let's just go on the Internet here. (laughs) So you absolutely know this field. Absolutely. Let's go on and we'll find all kinds of nutty things on there, you know, claiming conspiracies, et cetera. And I'll say, this is what we face. Yeah. You've got to make a decision about where does wisdom lie with scientists and people who study this or celebrities. It'll be interesting when we understand autism more, mm. what that will do to people who, to yeah. vaccine hesitancy. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think the, the big thing that's happening is people that were involved in that movement are recognizing this is not what the cause is. The advantage being, okay, now we can move to putting our money and our resources into figuring out what is causing this. Yeah. Can you explain how an outbreak of measles works? Tur- measles is a virus, and mm-hmm. it turns out that it is the most contagious human virus known, hmm. the most contagious. So you have to have about 96% of the population immune in order to prevent an outbreak. So you've got people who never got infected and are older, so they never got the vaccine. You've got this growing segment of the population who rejects the vaccine. Now a case gets imported, like the famous Disneyland outbreak, mm-hmm. and you got all these kids there, whether it's school uh, or, or amusement park, whatever it is, that are susceptible If somebody had been in this room with measles eight hours ago and you were susceptible and walked in, you'd get infected. 
And unfortunately, even today, measles kills about one to three out of a thousand people that get it. It is not a benign childhood disease. And, you know, I wonder, thinking through, I imagine probably people in the medical profession, physicians included, have not helped ourselves by, I think like you nicely mentioned, labeling people who don't want the vaccine as uncaring or stupid, um, as opposed to engaging in a decision, you know, shared decision-making model. What are some things that physicians can do or other clinicians can do even now to help combat vaccine hesitancy? You know, I, I may be biased here, but my daughter came up with a great model called the Preferred Cognitive Style and Decision Making Model. What it basically (laughs) says is our job as as healthcare providers is understand the preferred cognitive style. That means how 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 does my patient make decisions? And the onus is on us to change our style to meet their needs. And that's been effective. When we think about other ways that um, people can think about um, vaccines coming down the pike and how to approach that with an mm-hmm. open mind, are, are there? I know that's is part of the reason I asked this question is because there's been a, this cloud over vaccine research mm-hmm. that slows down progress. So, what things are on the horizon that we might be able to look forward to if we can continue to combat this misinformation? Well, it's a very, I mean, it's a great question, but a very difficult one to answer because the real answer lies in improving the scientific literacy of the culture, and that's a long-term job. It starts in grade school. Yeah. Importance of science. And I think there are so-called nudges that can happen. For example, um, when you say to a uh, insured population, if you get your flu vaccine, because of the data we have that says you're going to be healthier and our costs will be lower, you get flu vaccine, you get a hundred dollar discount on your insurance. Guess what? They do it. <laughs> <laughs> and probably, yeah, I think that's a great point because probably you wonder that the effectiveness of that financial inducement to some state laws that are coming down to say, look, we're going to we're not going to have philosophical objections yeah, to vaccines that's, anymore. That's a good point. State laws can help yeah. too. Yeah. And finally, what's on the vaccine horizon? Well, the uh, Zika vaccine is on the horizon. A Lyme vaccine is on the horizon. There is now a new shingles vaccine that actually got released in January. So we're seeing a lot of progress. There's a lot of work in vaccines against cancer. So uh, lots of of interesting things that over the next decade or two will pan out. We've been talking about vaccine hesitancy and research with the director of Mayo Clinic's Vaccine Research Group, Dr. Gregory Poland. Thanks again for joining us, Dr. Poland. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, will the HPV test replace the pap smear someday? And later on the program, how bacteria in your gut may be affecting your ability to lose weight. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. We'll start with info about how researching astronauts could potentially help everyone. Now, when astronauts are in space, they monitor their vital signs intermittently for experiments, partly because continuous monitoring is cumbersome. Now, researchers at Mayo Clinic's Florida campus are studying a device to be launched into space that's designed to use a small, inexpensive camera fitted with specialized software. This software has the potential to monitor an astronaut's vital signs continuously and contact-free from feet away, saving precious cargo space and leaving astronauts unencumbered. The equipment's first flight will be unmanned, so for the purposes of this study, the camera will not be pointed at a human. 
Rather, the study will assess the movements of the second hand of a watch that will float within a canister. Dr. Michelle Freeman says this can simulate how well the camera can pick up minute movements of the second hand while on a watch floating in zero gravity. In humans, the device tracks subtle pulsations in blood vessels of the skin, telling us heartbeat and respiration rate. The second hand of the watch will be our pulse for the trip. Now, the second phase will be to test the camera on humans in simulated microgravity and then potentially on astronauts on board the International Space Station or commercial space ventures. Not only will this tool help ensure the health of astronauts and space tourists, on Earth it could be beneficial in telemedicine and home health care. And in other news, we'll stay here on Earth and talk about screen time, meaning how much time kids sit in front of screens for fun. In this society, screens are everywhere. But how much screen time is too much for your kids? Well, it depends on a child's age. Pediatrician Dr. Angela Matke says the recommendations are really to minimize screen time in children before age two. So between ages two and five, she recommends you keep screen time to one hour or less per day. And in children that are older than five, she recommends trying to minimize a recreational or enjoyment-related screen time to two hours or less per day. Now, two hours or less a day applies to teens as well, but the recommendations do not include educational-related screen time. Dr. Matke says, use screen time as a reward. Try not to use it as a punishment, but if you're using it as a reward, it's something kids are earning throughout the day for good behavior. Now, in limited amounts, the social aspect of screens can help teens feel connected. Too much screen time may interfere with sleep, increase the risk of depression, and increase the risk of obesity. In fact, Dr. Matke says research shows for every hour per week increase of screen time, there are increases in the body mass indexes of preschool-age children. So she says the best way to help kids manage screen time is to be aware and communicate with them. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Jake Strand. And I'm Tracy McRae. For most women under age 65, a visit to the gynecologist or primary care provider usually includes a pap smear to check for cervical cancer risk. A pap smear is done by scraping cells from the back of the cervix to check for signs of abnormality. But in the past five years, a new test has been approved to screen for cervical cancer risk, the HPV test. The HPV test screens directly for the human papilloma virus, which is the cause of almost all cervical cancers. Nearly 13,000 women in the U.S. are diagnosed with cervical cancer each year, so improved screening could be an important step towards saving lives. Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic gynecologist Dr. Margaret Long. Welcome to the program, Dr. Long. It's nice to meet you. Right. Thank you. Well, first of all, tell us what is HPV? I know it's the human papilloma virus, but what is it? It is a virus that can infect many people. Um, almost half of the population actually gets exposed to HPV at some point in time. Um, for some people, it doesn't cause any disease, and in some individuals, it can cause cancer in the cervix and other locations. And, and one of the things that has certainly come about, I think a lot in the media, there's been vaccinations aimed at HPV, right. and we'll talk about that, as well as testing. So how, when we think about the HPV test specifically, how is that different from a normal procedure like a pap smear? Okay. 
So a pap test looks for abnormal cells on the cervix, and it's been a wonderful test. It saved a lot of lives, but it's a fairly difficult test to read. Whereas the HPV test is more of a yes or no answer, it um, is a lot easier to run, and it's um, harder to mess up. Well, explain the difference then. Okay. Uh, what what happens when you're having a pap smear? Uh, mm-hmm. You're taking cells when you're doing an HPV test. Are you not taking cells? The, the collection for a current pap and the current HPV test is the same. At some point in time in the future, hopefully we'll have an easier way of collecting the HPV uh, sample. Mm-hmm. But for now, the patient's experience in the office is about the same. I would take one comment, though. When we're collecting cells, it's not as dramatic as a scrape. I mean, it's it's not. I mean, it kind of feels like a scrape. Well, it's I'm a, just saying it's a part of your body <laughs> that people don't touch very often, and you know, it's not the most comfortable thing in the world. But for you know, a minute, half a minute of not great experience, you're looking at three to five years of absolutely worth it. No cancer risk. Or absolutely cancer worth risk. it. Yeah. But right. what's a better word to use than scrape? I like collect. Okay. I think it's a better. From it's now nice, on, it's a I nice will use collect. collector sample. Scrape, scrape sounds terrible. Yeah. Well, and it's it's helpful. I think it's important to distill a lot of these myths because I think as you're talking about the idea of a pap smear when you're looking at the cell itself, you're really looking for for things that have already gone a bit haywire, right, in the right. cell. Whereas this type of test done well, you can detect the presence of the virus maybe before it's caused problems. Is that a fair right. way to think about right. it? Right. Right. Part of the beauty of the test is if it's negative, then your risk for cervical cancer is very low for many years, which is why you can do it less often. Whereas a single pap test, it certainly reduces your risk of having cancer at the moment, but it's um, not good enough to wait a long ter- period of time before you repeat it. What are currently, what are the recommended guidelines for both? Okay. So for a standard pap test, it's every three years, unless you've had an abnormal result, in which case it's more often. For the HPV test only, it's every three years, once you've gotten to be age 30. And for women who are above 30 that can have the HPV test and the pap test together um, every five years. It's kind of confusing. It is. Because if the pap, <laughs> it, it if the pap smear and the HPV test both every three years, have these not been done at the same time to this point anyway? Uh, some providers have been doing both of them, and that's been our practice here at the clinic for a while. And do you, when you think about um, who should get which one, you know, are there different recommendations from society? So you mentioned sort of our policy here at the clinic, sort of other places. Does that vary a bit? So... Young women have HPV very frequently, and a lot of them will get rid of the HPV virus or at least keep it quiet enough so it doesn't show up on the test. And so um, we don't do HPV testing for young women because a lot of them are going to have the virus and their chance of having cancer is really, really low. But in older women, if they have the HPV virus, then their cancer risk is higher. You said... It, the HPV might not be present enough, strong enough what to show up. as right. What is happening there? Is it going away? Is it like a regular virus that your body has it, but then you 
get better and you don't have the cold virus anymore? I think of it a lot like um, varicella or chickenpox, that children will get chickenpox called varicella when they're young. They'll get over their acute disease. And then when they're 70, they'll have shingles. And so HPV probably acts like that, too, where you get an infection. Most women will clear that infection, and hopefully it will stay quiet forever or go away. But for some women, um, they can't suppress it. They can't um, beat the virus down, and so they're more likely to have problems from it. And so that's why you need to keep having your pap smears or cervical exams. All right, so what are those guidelines? When can you stop having the pap smear? So right now the recommendation is age 65 for women who have not had abnormal cells on their cervix before the required treatment. So if, let's say, 10 years ago at age 55, a woman had a biopsy that showed some severely abnormal cells in her cervix, she would need to be screened for 20 years. So you don't want to stop at 65. But if you've had your cervical cancer screening for decades, it's always been normal. Continuing beyond age 65 is not helpful. Okay. And and I think you brought up a great analogy about the varicella and the the, the the shingles in which, you know, we have a shingles vaccine. Right. We also have a vaccine for HPV, which becomes right. really important to do that beforehand. Right. Before people are coming to contact. So I'm glad right. you brought up that. Right. Yes. That I mean, it, it's better to prevent the HPV in the yeah. first place rather than keeping track of it later. Yeah. Well, we've been talking about pap smears and HPV tests with Mayo Clinic gynecologist Dr. Margaret Long. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Long. Thank you. We are going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll hear how your gut bacteria may be affecting your ability to lose weight. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Jake Strand. And I'm Tracy McRae. Why do some people lose weight more easily than others? A preliminary study published in the August issue of Mayo Clinic Proceedings may hold some answers. Everybody's ears go, what, when you said that? (laughs) The study suggests that for some people, their gut bacteria may be responsible for their inability to lose weight, despite adhering to strict diet and exercise regimens. Here to discuss are the co-authors of the study, Dr. Vandana Nehra and Dr. Perna Kashyap. Welcome, both of you, to the program. It's nice to have you here. Thank Thank you. You You know, when you say, why is it harder for others, people are so interested in this. Does your gut bacteria really have something to do with this? We've looked at a lot of different things which dictate how people would lose weight or not lose weight. But one of the things people have not looked at in the past are the gut bacteria. And the reason it becomes important is that gut bacteria are an integral part of our of our biology. You know, mm-hmm. So they do a lot of important things in the gut. And one of them is to be able to digest food that we cannot digest. And in that process, they will provide some energy to us. So as a result, our calories are not just limited to what we can break the food down into, but also what the bacteria can break them down into. So when we consider that, I think they become a part of the equation when we're trying to lose weight by trying to diet. So how how do we get a certain good bacteria in our gut? How how does that get determined from the beginning, whether it's good or bad? So that's more a determinant of your long-term diet. So what, what we've been eating for a long period of time determines what your gut bacteria would look like. Even though we can see some fluctuations from day to day, it's mainly your dietary habits because most people have constant dietary habits. They don't change on a weekly basis. And and that's what determines what your bacteria are going to look like because depending on what food you eat, the bacteria which can utilize those are going to thrive in your gut. 
How is the study performed? Do you just find a lot of people who say, yes, I want to lose weight, please study me? <laughs> How did you do it? <laughs> so th- these are volunteers who are very interested in losing weight. So they participated in a Mayo Clinic uh, weight loss program, which is a comprehensive lifestyle intervention program. So, uh, so the way this program was uh, set up was that, that, that these patients uh, were asked to be on a diet that was uh, low in calories, high in fiber, and they also were involved in an exercise program which involved mainly walking. So, this, so they were the two components of this was exercise and dietary change. And then what we did is we collected stool specimens on these patients, on these participants rather, before they started the intervention with the diet change and exercise and also at the end of their uh, end of this program. So to figure out what camp you'd put them in, here's what their gut bacteria is, here's what these people's gut bacteria is, it's just from a stool sample you can tell that? Yeah, so a stool sample is pretty representative of bacteria within the entire gut. It's not as specific of a very specific location within the gut, but it's a good representation of the bacteria within your gut. All right. So, Dr. Nero, what did those results show? So those results showed that the, that the participants who did not lose weight with this intervention not only had different type of bacteria, but also these bacteria appeared to be more efficient in extracting energy from the diet. And if that, if that intervention is some period of time, um, how do you change your gut bacteria if, if if you get into a situation where you're not losing weight and you've made dietary changes and you give up on that diet? So how long does it take before you can actually make this change? So it's, again, it's not an easy task to change the gut bacteria because, as I mentioned, it, it's shaped by a lot of different factors where you live, what you eat, mm. your environment. Uh, so it's not going to be as easy as, you know, let me take something for five days and I can change my gut bacteria. So there are two corollaries. You can either say probably we should not give them this diet to lose weight because they probably won't be able to lose weight. And the other is if we say we would like for them to change their bacteria, we probably need a much longer intervention, especially if you're trying to use diet as a way of modifying. So, you know, you almost have to have a lifestyle change for a long period of time before we can hope to change the bacteria. One of the most interesting interviews that we've ever done was about fecal transplant. And if we can do a fecal transplant, why can we not do a gut bacteria transplant? I knew you were going with that. I'm so <laughs> glad that you asked that question because that was mine. Uh, you know, so so that's called like the easy way out, right? So say, mm-hmm. can we just yes, do I the want fecal- that. <laughs> <laughs> so can we just take these good bacteria and put them in? Uh, while it seems to be really effective in C. difficile, we know that it has not been effective in other diseases are not as effective in other diseases because C. difficile is an acute infection and it's because we've lost this diversity of bacteria and as a result of fecal transplant, we just restored that diversity. Chronic diseases are not that simple. Chronic diseases are a result of multiple factors. In fact, there was a study where they did try to take lean individuals' bacteria and transfer them to obese individuals and while it looked promising and it improved glucose tolerance, it did not have an effect on weight. It worked for mice? No, this was in humans. Okay, but didn't we get this to work in mice once? I think yes. that's the first time we interviewed you. Yes, yes. We, d- we have gotten this to work in mice, but under very specific conditions. Okay. So we can get the, the lean, back, lean appearing uh, mice to transfer their bacteria to the obese mice, but under very specific diet conditions. So Dr. Nero, what does this mean for patients that you see in clinic? So I think, as you have to understand, this was a very preliminary or a pilot study. We do need some larger studies to 
to see how this would all kind of, in other words, pan out, you know, for the patients. So our vision is that uh, we need to develop a tool that we can identify some specific strains of gut bacteria for early kind of stratified patients into what form of therapy would be most effective for them to lose weight. And again, as Dr. Kashyap said earlier on, this is only one part of the story. There are many factors that go into the makeup of obesity. So we're just focusing on a aspect, and we hope that that can make a small difference in the management of these patients. If you've got the different uh, types of gut bacteria, you've got the volunteers who are in this study that you can put into the two camps is there a big range? I mean, like these people have got gut bacteria that are really bad or these people have got amazing gut bacteria. Are you able to look at it like that? So the difference was not that dramatic. Okay? Okay. The difference was small, but to us what was interesting is we tried to impute from the kind of bacteria which are present in terms of what they can do. And when we did that, we found that some of these bacteria are likely more efficient in getting energy from carbohydrates. And that was interesting to us because, in fact, a dietary intervention was to take energy-dense food and change it into more fruits and vegetables. So, in theory, that would be good because now you've got low-calorie, dense food. It should fill you up, and you should lose weight. But if the bacteria, which is what they should do, they should provide us with energy. If they're more effective, then they may hinder that. It's not going to be the only part of the equation, but they may cause a road bump along the way. And so now are you going to do another... Are you going to do this again? What's next in this research? Well, we have a larger study that's uh, on uh, almost completed, and we are analyzing data. Let's see how this all kind of uh, settles down. So we'll probably, that for the next time, we'll let you know how that comes again. Oh, you want to come back again. <laughs> We're flattered. <laughs> that's perfect. Well, we'll hear more. And, and we've been talking about how your individual gut bacteria may play a role in your ability to lose weight with Mayo Clinic gastroenterologists Dr. Vandanda Nira and Dr. Purna Kashyap. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio, or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at newsnetwork.mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Jacob Strand. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.